Welcome to the Kennedy Report. I'm Kennedy Hall, and this is our fourth episode in our series on creationism and evolution. And the focus of today's episode is going to be on pseudoscience and bad philosophy and how those things have to do with evolutionary theory. We spoke briefly about this in one of our previous episodes, but evolutionary theory is not, strictly speaking, a scientific endeavor. We'll go into why that is and why the philosophical errors are fundamental, but you need to understand something, that a scientific enterprise is going to be focused on looking at evidentiary things that can be empirically proven or disproven. Now, of course, there is room for making speculations and trying to fit things into the hypothesis that any given person might have, but it's quite another thing to take very small amounts of evidence and sort of try to make that fit into a large narrative that explains all of human history. Um, evolutionary theory touches on the grounds of theology, it touches on the grounds of history, it touches on the grounds of philosophy, and it's not strictly a scientific endeavor. One of the great errors that has spread since Our Lady of Fatima appeared to us over 100 years ago is the error of materialism. We spoke about this a little bit in one of the previous episodes, but we're going to go a little bit more in depth into what that has to do with our topic for today. So just for a second, think of the significance of the Fatima apparitions. Our Lady appeared in a heavenly manner, small children, showing us the fundamental reality that certain things have to be revealed to us in order to understand them in a supernatural way. Our Lord reveals things to us over time through apparitions, through miracles, through the Holy Scriptures, the history of the Church, and so forth. And these things are done in a supernatural way. What does that mean? It means that if we were to just look at the material world, just think about the things that we can know through our physical senses, there are certain things that we just couldn't know. Our reason, for example, as human beings, is something, you know, I always would say to my students, I say, you know, try to reason to reason without using your reason. You know, it's sort of a, a tongue twister, but the point is, you can't do certain things as a human person without just accepting that they're already there. And they can't be seen under a microscope. They can't be seen through a mathematical equation. They're just things that we have to assume in order to do anything, in order to have any ordered knowledge. Ironically, we need to have a good philosophical outlook in order to do science at all. Now, materialism. This is uh, the idea, the error that is fundamental to evolutionism, communism, the things that we've spoken about. That All there is is the material. So when we think like this, we look for evidence of processes. We look for the way that things might work using only a small window of what is available to us. Now just think for a quick moment about the contrast between the evolutionary paradigm and the scriptural paradigm. The evolutionary paradigm is a sort of a path of discovery. I don't believe in it, of course, but what I mean is at least the mentality behind it is that if we just keep digging, I guess pun intended, but if we just keep looking, we will find answers based on what we can infer from those things. So it's sort of a gradual, uh, it's sort of a gradual revelation from the earth. We're looking at things from the earth, trying to find out what they mean. Now, we still have to impart our own meaning on those things. So once again, as we'll see, that's where our philosophical outlook comes into play. Whereas if we look at the biblical outlook, what we have are things being revealed to us by God. Once again, uh, the scriptural approach is a top-down approach, and the evolutionary approach is a bottom-up approach. Okay. Now, it's interesting to think about one of the fundamental aspects of the Marian apparitions at Fatima, and the one that we should think about now is the miracle of the sun. Now, the reason why this has something to do with what we're talking about is, according to our modern wisdom, the sun is not supposed to move. But 
Of course, the sun danced in the sky and came closer to earth. Now, whatever one may think about the place of the sun, the reality is, is that that shows that ultimately God is in control and there is something way beyond the material. We can't understand the place of material things if we don't understand their place amongst the supernatural order that God has bestowed on his creation. Just as an aside, we actually have a great video on the Fatima Center YouTube channel, Chris Ferrara interviewing uh, someone named Robert Sungenis about the controversy between helio and geocentrism, and it's worth taking a look at. It's quite interesting. Also, materialism is a necessary cog in the machine of Marxism as Marxism ultimately requires an atheistic worldview in order that the state become a godlike thing to be worshipped. Okay, So, once again, communist societies at times, they may have permitted, and still do to this day, permit certain types of worship, but it's really a horizontal thing. It's a mundane, earthly worship, because you cannot exalt anything over the state. Whether you're a Christian church or whatever, ultimately the state is going to tell you what you're ultimately allowed to believe, and who you're ultimately allowed to worship. Right now we're hearing about uh, Catholics in China, for example, and they're being forced to have uh, images of you know, their president or whoever on their walls, even in the place of crucifixes and things. And that's just a demonic thing, and there's no place for that in the Catholic Church. Now, evolutionism facilitates this error of materialism. Now, some people might say, well, I believe in evolution, but I still believe in God. That may be so. People can believe in a lot of things. I don't think a lot of people, or some people I should say, I don't know if they follow their beliefs through to their logical conclusion. And I've noticed this a lot when talking to people about evolutionary theory. And I recommend you watch our last video where we talked about dogma and Darwin and the contrast between the two. And if you really follow the logic of the evolutionary hypothesis through, you get to a pretty ugly scenario, a pretty ugly, almost monstrous beginning and development of mankind that is not befitting at all for a good God who created the heavens and the earth. But in any case, evolutionism, even for people that stick to a certain belief in God, it's going to facilitate uh, something like a practical atheism. Because you're going to ultimately have to deny the goodness of God in his creation, deny parts of the Holy Scriptures for the most part, and uh, you know this is going to lead to a destruction of part of your faith. Now, We've already gone over how absurd it is to try and reconcile evolutionary thinking and Catholic dogma. Therefore, we need to understand that it does require dissent from certain dogmas of the Catholic faith in order to believe it. And please see our last video for more in-depth explanation of those. But perhaps most importantly, believing in evolutionary theory actually requires or at least leads to a bad philosophy which will lead to bad science. Science does not, you know, so-called speak for itself. People will say things like, well, the science says. That's absurd. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists may say things, but science is a tool. It's a methodology. You know, you may as well say the telephone says. You may as well say the hammer created the stairs. These are tools that we can use for creating certain things or transmitting ideas, but they don't actually say anything. Science is, you know, the natural sciences is a method that we have used with great success in certain ways to use the material world to our benefit to understand things. Obviously, there are wonderful instances of empirical sciences and medicine and engineering, very practical things. But once we get into the realm of the theoretical, the hypothetical, 
things that have to do with history, things that contrast the revealed scriptures, etc., we are no longer just doing science. Like I said earlier, we're doing history, we're doing philosophy, and so on. Once again, I said science is a tool. It's going to require human beings to do the interpreting. If you have a bad or wrong philosophy about the nature of reality, when you go into any type of research, you're going to come out with the messed up idea. Just look around at our world. Lots of times, uh, pro-life advocates will rightly try to use science to prove that what's in the womb is an unborn child. And I obviously agree. But they sometimes miss the fundamental concept that the dis disagreement between those who are advocates for abortion and those who are against it is that there is no proof for the person who is stuck in their advocacy for abortion because they don't view the human person as anything other than material. And because they don't view the human person as anything other than material, you could draw a line wherever you want. You know, they could say, well, for me, when the baby has, when there's a heartbeat, then it's too much. But they might just as well say, um, when tissue is seen in the specimen, that's a line for me. The line is arbitrary. They draw it wherever they want because they view the human person as something that is just material. The real difference is theological and philosophical. Only when people who advocate for things like abortion, let's say, start to view the person as having a unique soul created in the image and likeness of God, then only at that point will they see the sacredness of the human life from conception till natural death. That's just an example. We suffer from a great misunderstanding of philosophical truths in our society. The sciences are natural sciences, we should properly say. It's one of the ways of knowing things. I like to use this uh, little example I've used with students in the past. Imagine I gave you a chocolate cake. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not just trying to make you hungry, but imagine I gave you a chocolate cake. Okay, you could have a chemist, you could have a physicist, and you could have a biologist. I mean, you could probably even have various types of engineers or something look at this chocolate cake. And they could use all of their tools, all of their expertise. The chemist would tell you chemical things, the physicist, physical things, and so on. But not a single one of those scientists could tell you who the cake is for. The only way they could tell you who the cake is for is if you revealed that to them. This might sound like a childlike analogy, but there's some truth to it, because sometimes truths like this are just really that simple. We can't know about the beginning of time because we weren't there. The only way we could know about the beginning of time is if it has been revealed to us. Anything else is just speculation. Now, other things you couldn't know. Sure, you couldn't know who the cake was for, but you also can't know why you made the cake. Perhaps you made the cake for your aunt, you know, your aunt Jenny, because when you were a small boy, she used to make you chocolate cake on every birthday, and there's a nostalgic element to it. We don't know this at all. There's so many things that you cannot know just by the natural sciences. And in some cases, natural sciences might be useless. How could a scientist tell you whether a poem is good or not? Right? There's no formula to tell you that Shakespeare was a good author, for example. And I could go on. But we have to understand that when we're looking, once again, at human history, at the debate between creationism and evolution, it's not strictly a scientific endeavor. Now, we need to think as well that there is not actually that much evidence. This speaks more to the pseudoscientific part. There's not actually that much observable evidence of evolutionary theory. And I, I would actually venture to say we have no legitimate observable evidence, meaning no one has ever observed evolution happen. And this is quite conveniently built into the theory, isn't it? Because what does evolution require? 
Evolutionary theory requires tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of years. At best, you could have a lab experiment or some sort of uh, long-lasting experiment, uh, whatever field you're in, that could last maybe years maximum. You can't prove or disprove the evolutionary theory using a time frame that, that is similar to what it would take to that's similar to what it would take to actually see it. It's very convenient. We can say, well, uh, if we had enough time, anything is possible. Well, with all due respect, that's sort of like a scientific magic trick. You know, if I just add the perfect potion, then it's going to end up just the way that I want it to. It's not provable or disprovable. Also, a lot of the evidence that are, we are told is actual evidence for evolutionary theory has been fraudulent. There have been multiple digs in the past. Most notably, there was a dig in Nebraska called Nebraska Man. If anyone's heard of this, they'll know that all they found at this dig was a single tooth. One single tooth. So from one single tooth in the soil that was assumed to belong to some sort of human ancestor in the state of Nebraska, within days you were able to see, this was in the early 1900s, you were able to see on the covers of newspapers completely drawn uh, sketches of what these people would have looked like from a single tooth. It actually turned out later on that this fraud ended up being the tooth of some sort of pig. So there you go. There was another fraud in England, Piltdown, England. Piltdown Man, it was called. Similar thing. I believe there was part of a jawbone found, part of a skull. You know, the press caught wind of it. It became, you know, a big thing. Museums were all after it. It was, you know, proof of evolutionary theory, etc. Later on, it turns out that there was a combination of human bones and orangutan bones used in this, and they had dyed it and sanded it down and made it look old, and, and it was a complete fraud. But it was around for a few years. And these things exist in other aspects of evolutionary theory as well. In fact, if you take all of these supposed bones of ancestors, of supposed ancestors of human beings, you could fit all of the evidence of all of those bones found on Earth talking about supposed human ancestors, not all fossils, but just human ancestors, into the back of a pickup truck, and there'd still be room. Some people estimate you could fit them all in a Prius. I don't know. Nonetheless, we would imagine that tens of millions of years of ancestors existing before human beings could leave more evidence than what could fit in the back of a small pickup truck. But I digress. On the other hand, we have loads of remains of actual human beings at all grave sites all over the world. And we have evidence from all cultures and all histories that from the beginning of human civilization, which all curiously goes back only a few thousand years, if you follow the records back, Babylonians and the, you know, the various aboriginal tribes, etc., they don't go back more than a few thousand years. And they all talk about the ancestral things. They all talk about burials. We see this in the human person since the beginning of what we know as recorded history. And just as a little side note, when people say things like prehistory, that's sort of like saying unrecorded video. There's no such thing as an unrecorded video. And there's no such thing as history that's before history. I hope that makes sense. But in any case, when we look to the historical accounts of all cultures and civilizations around the world, and I don't mean this to be indifferent saying they're all the same, but I'm saying there's similarities there. Because one thing we have to remember, the whole human race has come from this first couple of parents, from the first parents. That means that all over the world, even those that were far away from the ancient Hebrew traditions, those who didn't become Christian, etc., 
They all have various memories by word of mouth, cultural memories. And you find striking similarities filled with flood stories, um, even some of the cultures, when you do the translations of their languages and you go back to what those words would have actually have been, they're talking about the sons of Noah, they're talking about Adam and Eve just in their own language. And there's many, many examples of those. We see striking similarities to Genesis. This makes sense because of the ancestral memory that we would have as a civilization. It really is sort of a, an arrogant concept, isn't it? That a group of evolutionary theorists can look at all the recorded evidence and all of the testimonies of all of the cultures that have ever existed that we know of on Earth, and just disregard all of them because of some hypothesis about a very small amount of bones that supposedly have to do with human ancestors. And there are more frauds in these ancestor fossils than I've even talked about, and you can look into those, but it's, it's in the whole process. Now, like I said, everything in the past points to a creation point. Everything points to the special creation of man from some sort of supernatural event. Evolutionary theory denies all these things, supposedly in the name of science. But really, it's just a highly speculative, in some cases, even totally fantastical theory. One thing I mentioned in an earlier video, which bears repeating, we're told, once again, by these evolutionists, that the Garden of Eden is supposed to be a myth. Yet, we're supposed to believe that we all started in some primordial soup. Believing that the way things were created in the Bible, we're told, we're told that that is folly. However, blind belief in something like a lightning bolt hitting a pool of slime and, or a random explosion in the heavens is somehow sophisticated and is for educated people. It really is absurd. I don't know any other way to put it. But how do we get here? Well, first thing, we got here with bad philosophy. After the Christian era of the Middle Ages, we saw an advent of various different philosophies. Figures like René Descartes and others were very important in this endeavor, but we saw a relativization of truth. The famous statement from René Descartes is, I think, therefore I am. Basically, it means that I'm the arbiter of all things that exist because of how I think about them. That's obviously problematic because then you become the ultimate judge. And to contrast that, before we had this advent of bad philosophy, we had figures like Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas is known for his incredible philosophy and theology. But St. Thomas Aquinas had a teacher who was named St. Albert the Great. And St. Albert the Great was actually known as being one of the greatest scientists of his time. But somehow, as a scientist, he had the knowledge to be able to train St. Thomas Aquinas in philosophy and theology. If you were to find someone today who was specialized in the sciences, it would be very rare that they had any knowledge of philosophical sciences. And I would like to just dispel a certain myth here. Sometimes people will say, well, yes, you know, the scientists back then, they weren't as smart as we are now, or they didn't know as much. Of course, we develop on knowledge from our ancestors. But I would like to just do a little experiment here. If I gave you a hatchet and I sent you into the woods, how long before you send me an email? It's going to take you a very long time. They may not have figured out the same things that our software engineers are figuring out right now, but the only reason our software engineers can do anything at all is because of the intelligence and the civilizations that were built for us. Furthermore, ancient scholars, they would not recognize the compartmentalized educational approach that we have today. This idea that you can go through a university education. I mean, today you can even take an English degree at Yale University and not study Shakespeare. You can go through, I had a friend who was an engineer, and he was a very smart guy, but he would have me look at what he was handing in on his reports, 
And I can tell you that just from an English perspective, it's as if he had never written an essay in his life. And it wasn't that he wasn't very intelligent, it's that they never spent any time doing any literature. We have a very compartmentalized approach. So if we think of the problems with evolutionary theory, well, if you have a relativist philosophy, if you have a very sort of echo chamber, tunnel vision view on the way that the world is supposed to be, and a very limited understanding of good philosophy, you're going to have a bad way of interpreting physical things as you try to put together some sort of grand narrative. And that's exactly what we see. And there's two fundamental flaws as far as philosophy goes that I'm going to touch on here before we finish. The first one is a principle called sufficient causality. Basically, what sufficient causality means is what you have, you can give. What you don't have, you cannot give. So you can give what you have, you can't give what you don't have. So for example, a human couple can give human life to their human child because they're human beings. They can give human life. An organism that has, has the ability to see, an animal that has eyes, can have offspring that have the ability to see. Okay, It can't go from the less complex to the more complex. And in fact, what we see with mutations and things like that in the biological realm is we see that when there are changes in the complexity things actually start to denigrate. They start to degrade in complexity and sophistication. And most often what we see in uh, mutations and things like that from a higher organism to a lower organism is something like what results in deformities and whatnot. You can't give what you don't have. Non-human things can't give human life. It should be pretty simple. Now, the thing about evolutionary theory is that there's an unlimited amount of time to it. So this basic principle, which is philosophy 101, sufficient causality, evolutionary theory gives you this convenient way of sort of just going over this fundamental problem by just saying, well, give it enough time. Well, here's the thing. Time is a red herring. Is everything possible given enough time? Sure. Mathematically speaking, most things can happen given enough time, I guess. But I don't care if you sit there for a million years you're never going to watch you know, your cereal jump out of your cupboards and pour itself into a bowl and milk's going to pour on top of it. It's just not going to happen. Even, even there was, an, there was a, there's this common idea that you know, if you put a million monkeys in front of a million typewriters or something like that, you'll finally get Shakespeare eventually. Well, they've tried doing experiments like this, and after weeks on end of having chimpanzees around typewriters, all they really did was destroy them, defecate on them, ended up breaking some of the keys. So, you know, your math, mathematical, hypothetical things can possibly happen, but in reality, these things never happen. So that's the first one, a sufficient causality. You can't give what you don't have. Now, the second one, this is a big flaw, and it goes something like this. Evolutionary theory is based on this idea that current processes, the way things work now, explains how they came to be. Now, that's a pretty big assumption. I'll give you an example. If you stumble across a car, well, obviously cars have a way of functioning. You open up the hood and they're turned on. There are lots of things that are happening. The thing is, none of what's happening in the car at the moment has anything to do with how or why it was created in the first place. It actually takes a totally separate act by somebody who knows how to do something because of their intelligence 
who uses things that are seemingly unrelated and makes them work in a specific way with a specific purpose. Even the human being. Of course, we can know a lot about human beings by studying the processes in our bodies and things, but it takes a completely separate act, the act of conception with, with a husband and a wife, in order to, to understand how that human being came to be. And this is one of the fundamental flaws we see, and we'll talk about this more in our next episode with the way that dating works, carbon dating, etc., because it's mathematically possible to extend the half-life of certain things theoretically into the past for as many years as you can have come out on your equation, people assume that that must have happened. But all that means is that mathematically something is possible in the realm of hypothesis. But this does not mean that they have happened. So these two fundamental problems, just to reiterate, sufficient causality, which means you cannot give what you don't have, and believing current processes, the way they work now, explain how things came to be. In my opinion, those are two of the major philosophical flaws that ultimately lead to bad science. Now, I spoke at the beginning of this series about a documentary series called Foundations Restored from the Kolbe Center. I actually recommend everyone check that out. Once again, our uh, priest contributor, Father Shannon Collins, is featured in that series. And they do a really good job of explaining how those two errors really play into the shoddy research of evolutionary theory. Just to conclude here, because we have disregarded the basis for knowing things, i.e. good philosophy, it's almost as if with this stuff we're incapable of knowing what we don't know. So that's all for now. Thanks for joining me on the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.